Well, good morning, June 2nd already. Here we are for another episode of Business and the Week in Review. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Bob Hughes. How are you doing today, Bob? Present and accounted for. That's all I'm, go- That's all I'm owning up to. I'm here. That's what we can hope for, just to be here. Just got to be there. Got to be in it in it. Yes, it is. Uh, no, it's it's nice to uh, to when you when you work for yourself and you work on your own. It's nice to speak to other people. It really truly is. Yes, I I understand that. <laughs> Sometimes sitting home in your basement with imaginary friends gets old. It really does. So you long you long for Mondays, which is now Tuesday, because I had a family issue yesterday. So. You look forward every Monday, right? Just like the people that listen. I do. I, I I look forward to the meaningful educational conversation, and that is not sarcasm. It really <laughs> isn't. <laughs> My wife, I think, probably looks forward to it. Shouldn't you be talking to Peter about that? Leave me alone. <laughs> oh, I hear that all the time too. So, uh, Save it for the show. Yeah, I can't believe here we are, June already. Kids are at school. We were just talking about that before we went on. Your kids yeah. are out. Kids are getting out. It's just crazy where time goes. All into the year. It is. Um, it's it, it, and it seems like it's 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 it, there's there's it's like a, a curve. The the further out you get, the the shorter the time becomes. It's, yeah. It's, uh, it, it never never gets any slower. I mean, I, I can't remember last week. Today is really dragging by. I haven't said that in years. I know. Right? The fastest day is our Saturday and Sunday. Absolutely. <laughs> By design. But I think they've shortened them and we weren't paying attention. I think so, too. That's what happened. So uh, before we get going today, I just wanted to mention something that I saw on uh, the cover of USA Today. I've been following for a bit. Uh, do or have you been following the story with the Muslim woman who was denied uh, a, a position at Mokrati and Fitch? Have you seen that? Man, I, I, I may have to jump off and jump back in. Okay. This is this is actually. No, let me do this. All right, you tell everybody that you know what I'm talking about. I'll talk. I, 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 you yeah. look at, and we'll I'll, I'll try to solve this. All right. <laughs> okay. okay. Um, an interesting story though. I'm going to cover USA today, and uh, if you had been following it, it did not receive a lot of media attention until until recently. It went up to the Supreme Court. Um, and basically what it was is that this woman applied for a job at Abercrombie & Fitch. And if you know Abercrombie, it's like this metrosexual designer store where if you're not really thin, you have no hope of ever fitting into anything that they sell. Um, so you and I would not be shopping in that store, Bob. It's not for ourselves. Um, but what's interesting about it is that she alleges she was denied the opportunity Work there. She put in an application. And they told her no, and she alleges it was because she's Muslim and wears the uh, traditional head garment. And uh, excuse my, my ignorance, for not being able to identify um, what it is. I think as I'm reading here, it's called the job. Uh, and she said that she was discriminated against because of that. And if anyone knows about Abercrombie, there's always been sort of this unspoken rule that you have to have this kind of neutral look to work at Abercrombie. You have seen their catalogs or their flyers or magazines. You know, it's all these metrosexual people, and they're like 
perfect and thin and everything looks good on them and it just isn't real that they want to have to promote that image. And so uh, this woman, her name is Samantha Aloof, I hope I pronounced that right, she applied for a job and was told no and she alleges it was because of her head, um, her head attire, the, um, the hijab. And she brought this uh, in court alleging discrimination and violations of, of her um, civil rights. And then what has happened is that it progressed through the lower courts. It ultimately makes its way to the Supreme Court on the USA Today. Supreme Court decided that you cannot discriminate against somebody on the basis of their religion, even if they do not request an accommodation. And so an accommodation is basically where you have somebody saying, uh, hey, hey, listen, uh, this needs to change for me. I'm, I'm handicapped. I can work, but I need you to put in a wheelchair or something to that effect. And if it's doable and it doesn't cost an excessive amount of money, the employer generally has an obligation to kind of make that happen. Now, in this case, uh, she alleges that they discriminated against her by not hiring her, and they countered with no request for accommodations made, and that's not why they wouldn't hire her and a whole host of other uh, reasons. But the Supreme Court basically deciding that this woman has... Uh, been discriminated against, and that an employer cannot discriminate against someone on the basis of religion, even if they've not requested that reasonable accommodation. It's an interesting case, and it opens up the door I think, for um, a lot of of changes in the way that freedoms are handled in, especially retail establishments or any job. Uh, I, I think that goes without saying that a lot of employers, especially larger companies, larger companies, they know that they can't discriminate against somebody on the basis of, of their religion or what they wear. Um, and I'm talking about businesses, you know, companies that are, are office staff, large, super large accounting firms, super large business consulting firms, advertising firms. You know, that they kind of understand that, but a lot of times some of these smaller, and Abercrombie is smaller in my world than this, um, they've got these policies and procedures in place, even if they're unspoken, so that they can keep an image of what they're selling. I mean, that would be like Victoria's Secret saying, okay, open up a, a men's line of uh, underwear and, and put Peter... I mean, you know, you'd never sell anything, right? That's just that would happen. And so there is the idea that they want to keep within a certain sort of look, but you can't take advantage of, of people and against them. And that's the case to saying. Now, it may open the door for other religious groups. If every religious group, um, Sikhs and Christians and Jews, were all interested in this case because of the kind of uh, expansion of the religious freedom idea. So it's interesting. We'll see if anything comes of it. But what fascinates me is this idea that Abercrombie would have this unspoken rule and would, you know, be so foolish 
as to ever give the idea that they're not hiring somebody simply because of their religious garb or the way they look or dress. It's just, in this day and age, kind of mind-blowing, mind-boggling. It just doesn't make sense to me as to exactly what's going on. Um, so I think it's an interesting story, something we should follow over time. Now, before we get going, I just want to thank our sponsor. Today's show is sponsored by Audible. Audible is the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks, and it's really a great service. It's an Amazon company. Everybody knows Amazon. It really allows me to kind of get through some content, some books that I just don't have the time to realize. I do have the time to listen to an audio, audio recording, whether it's in the shower or in the car. And so um, I've used them for years, and they're really great. And they're offering our listeners a special offer. You get a free book or a free download just simply for going to this following link. It is audibletrial.com forward slash UTL radio. And that'll take you to free download. Check it out. You know, you don't have to uh, subscribe to, them to get your free download. But it certainly is something that uh, I like. And you know, the one thing that's cool about it player. You can make it read at one and a half, two times the actual speed. So you can actually get, uh, adjust it to the point where you can comprehend what they're saying. You don't want to sound like Alvin and the Chipmunks, but it's a cool feature. So look like we're having technical difficulties, and we have lost Bob. I'm sure Bob will be out at some point. Right now, he's having some issues. So I'm going to start going through the news today, and we'll talk about it as I go through it. All right, so this is coming from Courthouse News. A woman sues uh, Virginia State University alleged hay and a few female employees of Virginia State University claim it's lost that they're less than their male counterparts for comparable work. Sandra Vins, Deborah Goodwin, and Zoe Spencer filed separate lawsuits against VSU and a university officials in Virginia City Court last week of the Equal Pay Act. Spencer Howard for 2008 currently holds the position of associate professor in the Department of Sociology, Social Work, and Criminal Justice, according to the lawsuit. She says that she makes $7,000 annually, but claims that male associate professors at VSU with comparable experience, qualifications, and responsibilities makes, make between $76,000 and $119,000. She further alleges that two assistant professors, a lower rank than associate professor, make more than $100,000 per year. Evan claims that a male colleague with fewer qualifications makes almost twice her pay, and she's been working at VSU since 2002 and currently works as a lecturer and director of the first-year experience program for the lawsuit. So essentially, the, these women are saying that as women, they're being paid less than men who have the exact more comparable experience and qualifications. Now, in 2012, the Gender Equity Task Force warned the administration at VSU about the university's hiring vice president or uh, an ombudsman. Ombudsman. That's always a word. Ombudsman. For equity. Made further recommendations for addressing the disparity according to the complaint. The administration dismissed the findings and recommendations to the task force and have since continued to willfully and knowingly violate the Equal Pay Act and Title VIII. 
university didn't respond, a lawsuit seeks amounts of back pay in addition to $500,000 in actual damages. So, interesting lawsuit, again, in the employment world. And here we see where we've got women alleging that they're being underpaid. Now, there's always been, I think, this argument out there that women, as far back as I can remember at least, that women get paid less than men. And apparently that's true because um, in some companies, in some settings and situations, there are companies and employers that for whatever reason, and you can't fix anything other than discriminatory, they just pay women less. Uh, But I think that in general, we've seen a major shift over the last few decades. I think that there are actually women that make far more than men. And I think it's really case by case. I don't think that you can generalize anymore. I don't think you can say women get paid less than men. There are studies out there that will show whatever you want it to show. Uh, you know, four out of five dentists recommend that sort of thing. But I think that generally speaking, I think that um, it's an individual company or in this case a school that might have that, that approach where they're going to give women less. But I don't think that necessarily you can generalize. I think it's industry-specific and company-specific. So all they have to do, and I say all, a very uh, high-hurdle case when you're dealing with employment termination, they have to show that the school had a systematic routine program of paying females less. So how would you go about doing that? And you do so by looking at payroll other male employees, you could compare them, and uh, it, it could be a protracted, very lengthy litigation. I would suspect that VSU is probably going to want to dispose of this case through early settlement just to avoid having to disclose other information, other people's salaries, and that sort of thing. We'll see where that goes. All right, now moving along to uh, YouTube, which I, like I mentioned, we are always broadcasting live on YouTube Live simultaneously with our live broadcast of the podcast on Blog Talk Radio. And don't forget, make sure you subscribe to our channel on YouTube, and that way you get notified when new videos post. Um, last week, we concluded our series, our five-part series on when or, or what the top five reasons are not to file a lawsuit. So if you want to be notified of coming events, live events like today, make sure that you subscribe to the channel. I digress. Now getting back to the story. So YouTube undercuts Chris Christie's privacy claims according to Courthouse News. Since there's already a video on YouTube of New Jersey Governor Chris Christie talking about his uh, uh, security detail, his office not use security concerns the basis to hold records from a reporter group to Christie's expenses, a judge ruled Thursday, noting that travel expenses for New Jersey's executive protection unit are 18 times higher than when Christie took office. New Jersey watchdog reporter Mark Lagervit brought a suit earlier this year for more information on records showing a permanent charge nearly $800,000 to American Express or American Express cards travel costs and his state police security detail. Christie's attorney told Murray County Superior Court earlier this month that releasing the credit card data would endanger the governor because it could potentially reveal 
the names of security unit members, the number of those members guarding over governor, and where they would be stationed. Though Judge Mary Jacobson previously seemed inclined uh, to credit these concerns, a position changed when leaders of it drew her attention to a video that governor's, uh, the governor's office posted on its YouTube channel in which a rather adorably asked Christie how many bodyguards he had. A subtle hint would be the guys with the fire ears, Christie joked in reply as he scanned the room uh, showing uh, security people and recording video. Now, after counting six on the video, Christie went on to say that New Jersey's executive protection unit employs 30 different officers and a number of whom follow him around the deck. Uh, had not sought the names of these officers who are Christie, only the amounts spent on expenses for the security detail. Jackson gave Christie's office until June 12th to have the captain of the Executive Protective uh, Protection Unit privately review credit card receipts in the judge chambers and explain why they could compromise the governor's security. Deputy <coughs> Attorney Deputy uh, General Daniel Vanella, who represented Christie, had no comment but had said during the hearing that, quote, I certainly wish the governor hadn't made those comments, close quote, in the YouTube video. Christie's office initially tried to rebuff Eggersfit by claiming the custodian of records, a co-defendant, had not kept monthly credit card statements prior to February 2010. The office then claimed providing receipts could allow a would-be assassin or other person targeting Christie to identify patterns in the governor's security procedures. Eggersfit reported earlier this month that state lawmakers are pushing legislation to expose how Christie spends his $95,000 annual expense account, a fund that comes in addition to the governor's $175,000 a year salary. Christie reportedly spent nearly $65,000 on security in 2010. His first office uh, term then doubled that in 2011 and has nearly doubled again allegedly in to be nominated by the Republican Party. And, of course, you're going to see those opponents those of Christie attacking him on every front. And this, I think, is expected part of the course. I have a hard time, and maybe I'm jaded, I have a hard time believing that Christie is the only person in politics who perhaps, um, uh, you know, and this, again, is allegedly missed money on certain or misapplied money. You know, this is this is par for the course. I, I don't understand the big issue here. I think it again is uh, simply election time politics where you want to discredit your opponents as much as possible. Uh, they tried to do that to, uh, to Christie with the um, George Washington Bridge issue. It didn't go too far. But I think that to poke holes in a potential candidate, all of these little things add up and give you, if you're his opponent at some point, fodder to attack him. Um, but, but, you know, look, I, I think that the issue is he has a budget, and as long as that budget can be accounted for, the money that's, that's being expended can be accounted for, um, you know, it's what it is. I think that if you want to really make a, an overwhelming change, then you've got to conduct a, an overhaul of the entire political process and look at everybody out there. Democrats, Republicans, Independents, it doesn't make a difference. I think that there is this 
you know, just unspoken law that, you know, when you're in, in politics, you've got power, and power corrupts. I, I think that um, when we find those political people, those political candidates and, and party members that remain true to themselves, remain on the up and up, uh, I think we should hold on to them, embrace them, because I think, unfortunately, the world of politics itself is corrupt, and, um, you know, I think that everybody has a little bit of that, that power cross within them. So it is what it is. We'll continue, I'm sure, to see people targeting Christie. A lot of people just don't like him. Uh, maybe it's because of his New Jersey-type personality. Um, but, you know, it, it, it's when you run for public office or when you put yourself in the public's eye through a political campaign, you expect this. And I, I'm sure that it will be addressed in due time by Christie's office. So, all right, moving along um, to Catherine Hepburn. So, according to Courthouse News, um, the court upholds Hepburn's property damages award. Connecticut property developers are entitled to $2.2 million of damage after buying actress Catherine Hepburn's beachfront home with an unclear title, the state appeals court ruled. The 3.5-acre property is located on Long Island Sound in the borough of Fenwick. In 2004, developers Fenwick Acquisition LLC and uh, 273 Water Street LLC, they're both developers, bought the property for $6 million. At that time, the developers bought a policy from First American Title Insurance. The developers divided the property into three lots and put them on the market for a total of $30 million. However, the borough of Fenwick claimed that it owned a 30-foot discontinued road on the property. The developers made a claim to First American, the title agency, or the title insurance company, I should say, which sent a check for $17,000. The developers refused to cash the check, claiming a loss of approximately $5 million. Both sides took the case to court, and the developers settled the dispute with Fenwick. An easement allowed runners and bikers to use a footpath on the portion of the land in question. The trial court ruled in the developer's favor, awarding them $2.2 million. First American appealed, but the Connecticut uh, Appellate Court upheld upheld the verdict in a ruling written by Judge Robert E. Beach, Jr. He disagreed with First American's argument that the defendants lacked standing to sue because they had transferred the disputed property to a third party. Also, Beach refuted First American's claim that the testimony from the defendant's expert on his theory of celebrity enhancement of the property value should have been dismissed as junk science. A real estate appraisal based in part on a celebrity enhancement theory is not likely improperly to arouse the emotions of the jury, Beach wrote on behalf of the court's three-judge panel. It was not likely to arouse in the jury feelings of hostility or sympathy, nor did it reflect unfavorably on the plaintiff. Now, a couple things of interest in this story. First of all, when you are involved in a real estate transaction, and even if it's on a residential level, you're not buying some $30 million property, the need for title insurance in any state, right? There are some states we've talked on some of the videos about um, title insurance. And oh, did we find Bob? Bob, are you back? <laughs> we'll see. It sounds a lot better now. So, I told you we'd find him at some point. So we're just going through. Uh, we're going through um, the Audrey Hepburn property story, and I'm just uh, talking about oh. some of the interesting things 
that are in this story, and the first and most important is the need for title insurance. And I was saying oh. that while certain states have rules regarding you know, whether or not you need an attorney to help you close on a residential property, uh, and it's interesting, Bob, because in New Jersey, the northern half of the state, you have an attorney help you with the closing process, while in the southern mm-hmm. part of the state, the title agent typically does it. You don't need an attorney, but title insurance is this mystical dollar amount that you have to pay and a lot of times, you know, buyers and sellers don't understand the need for title insurance. But title insurance is an insurance policy that provides you with protection should title not be clear on the property. And that's exactly what happened in this uh, Hepburn property. So it's interesting. Go ahead, Bob. It, it seems, I don't know, it seems redundant because, you know, how many times has this property been sold throughout the years and that's when when you go to buy a property it's like really i need to title insurance hasn't this been done before but right. something always pops up and it you're right it, it is it is the it's like any other insurance they're betting that you will and you're betting you won't right yeah that's exactly insurance is a or gamble yeah insurance yeah. is a gamble and i think that most insurance companies they make a ton of money on insurance because they're going to gamble that you're not going to make a claim. And if you start mm-hmm. making claims, they raise your premiums higher so to offset the risk that they're uh, you know, possibly on the hook for. But title insurance is so necessary. It's required in most states. But just to give you an idea of it, if you have title insurance and there's a problem that comes up with the title, and it does, Bob said it, it does happen all the time, then you've got some recourse because you've got insurance proceeds that can help you sort of refund your money. And, and this, again, is on the residential level. The Hepburn story is slightly different because there are two major developers. Um, but the idea of title insurance is still extremely important. So I'm going to let you pick up on uh, the next story, Bob. Oh, perfect. This is one I read and, and went, oh, really? <laughs> Don't count your weekends in IRSA appeals, the Ninth District Court, excuse me, Ninth Circuit says. Courthousenews.com, weekends should not be counted in the 180-day uh, day appeal period for the denial of long-term disability benefits, the Ninth Circuit ruled on Thursday. Andre Legrasse, who worked for, a, or worked for FedEx as a ramp transport driver for 23 years, injured his back on the job in 2008 and became a beneficiary of the company's long-term disability benefits. In 2011, Aetna Life Insurance, who administers the FedEx long-term disability plan, canceled his benefits because he did not show that his disability qualified as total disability. Now, the time frame for Legrasse to appeal the termination ended on a Saturday, and he mailed his appeal the following Monday. Aetna denied the appeal as untimely. Makes sense, you'd like to think. Well, in the Ninth Circuit panel's 22-page opinion, they differ. Circuit Judge Richard Pays says that Aetna should have accepted the appeal based on the widespread understanding that a deadline falling on a Saturday, Sunday, or a holiday extends to the next business day, especially since the Employee Retirement Income Security Act does not specify a method for computing time of appeals. There is nothing novel about the principle we adopt here, he wrote, incorporating this time computation method into URSA's Federal common law protects the interests of insured, thereby effectuating the policy goals of URSA. Further, the concept is generally accepted and vital. 
Now, Circuit Judge Randy and Randy Smith dissented, saying that the appeal deadline was clearly stated and that LaGrasse lost his opportunity to appeal as a result of his own conduct. Even LaGrasse agrees that he sent his appeal two days late, he wrote. To excuse LaGrasse's untimeliness, the majority turns a simple case of contract interpretation into an opportunity to, without precedent, expand federal common law. I cannot go along with them in bailing LaGrasse out, is what he basically said in his opinion. Smith added that a person of average intelligence and experience would understand 180 days to mean precisely what LaGrasse understood it to mean in this particular case. In other words, LaGrasse messed up, he failed to abide by his contract, and now seeks an excuse to set aside his failure, he wrote. The majority unnecessarily intrudes upon the ability of the parties to enforce the terms of their negotiated private contract. Can't agree more with the dissenters, but is this something that's going to stick here? Do they have grounds to continue this appeal? Maybe FedEx comes back and says, we, we appeal the circuit decision. This doesn't make sense. 180 days is 180 days. Yeah, I, I think that that's what FedEx should do. Um, you know, the interesting thing about this argument is that there are no means to calculate or to compute service for weekends. So if you look in any state's court rules, there's always going to be some rule about um, the computation of time for weekends. So if you've got X amount of days to serve a motion or to serve a complaint or whatever it might be, there are exceptions for certain weekend days. Sundays might not count, but it's clearly spelled out in the rules. The difference here is that how they forgot to include that, I don't know, but that's <laughs> missing. And so I think that that's really what the Ninth Circuit was holding on to, the fact that there's nothing in here about the computation of time. And so since there are other rules and other courts and, and um, municipalities, and you know, there's always this exception for certain weekend days. Generally accepted, generally accepted behavior. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but, you know, in my mind, I think 180 days is 180 days. You knew it, and you knew you sent it late. So, well, I mean, and that's that's you know that's the thing is there's some kind of law that's always going to come through if all contracts are enforced and end on a Saturday, Sunday, or a major holiday, eh, you get the next day off. Yeah, yeah. So how it's, it's just, is this? Yeah. Well, and you know, you look at the the, the story prior to that and in the insurance uh, title insurance. No insurance company is going to give you the benefit of the doubt or leniency. It is outside of the terms of the commitment and the gamble. You failed. You pay, pal. It's just like if you have car insurance and, and it was due on Saturday and you know what? Guess what? You didn't send your um, payment in in time and you get in an accident on Sunday. When the payment arrives on Monday, God, chances are you're not covered. Yeah. Yep, that's absolutely true. Absolutely so true. I, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'd be surprised if FedEx lets this sit. <laughs> yeah. Unless it just doesn't pay for it. You know, or, or, or Aetna, really, whoever has to pay for the, uh, the long-term disability, which Aetna is managing it for them. So it'll be interesting yeah. to see who bears the responsibility to figure this out. Yep, definitely. <laughs> just, just think of all the new contracts you can write, Peter. Yeah, I know. The never-ending contract. <laughs> It expires on Friday, but not Never really. <laughs> but not really. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, man. And there's always a way. Well, what is it? There, where there's a will, there's a way. Thieves find brazen ways to steal your identity. You think that this would be a bigger 
penalty, but it's really not. CNN.com telling us that a criminal could be collecting unemployment benefits under your name right now. Ha, I'd have to have a job first, and you wouldn't even know it. It's a crime so brazen that even police have been victims of the scheme, and it's so pervasive that prosecutors were surprised by the tsunami of fraud that we've seen in this country, quote-unquote, according to Alfredo Ferrara, the U.S. attorney for Southern District of Florida. Where criminals are capitalizing on that system to buy personal information stolen from places such as hospitals, medical offices, schools, and retirement programs. They then log on to state websites and file for unemployment benefits. Now, since the priority for the state is to get the money out quickly, they don't wait for an employer to verify the identity of the person applying for the benefits. Victims typically don't find out what's happened until their employer is notified that they're receiving unemployment payments. <laughs> Federal investigators estimate that the uh, unemployment benefit fraud totals run around, right around $5.5 billion, which includes schemes where identities were stolen. The fact that this is so easy to commit is something that has been a real challenge to law enforcement because the fraudsters keep evolving. And they always find a new way to steal our identities, Ferrar told CNN. All you need sometimes is a name, a date of birth, and a social security number. And sometimes you don't even need to commit that. To, or you don't, need, don't even need that to commit this crime. Now, Detective Craig Caitlin said he first noticed that criminals were stealing unemployment benefits because states generally do not confirm the identity of the person filing a claim until the money is already sent. No one knows the extent of the fraud from identity theft alone in a 15-month period, though. State of Florida stopped 97,000 fraudulent claims worth about $400 million, according to Jesse Panuccio, the executive director of the Florida Department of Economic Opportunity. Yeah, that's an economic opportunity, all right, which oversees unemployment benefits. Florida, like other states, is under federal mandate to pay claims within a couple of weeks, even if an employer hasn't responded to confirm the person is unemployed. The fraud is so serious that Panuccio wrote a letter in March to U.S. Labor Secretary Tom Perez warning that organized criminal enterprises are attacking public benefit systems on a daily basis. Unfortunately, South Florida has become a national hub for this activity. The Labor Department's Inspector General concluded in 2014 report that the unemployment insurance program is particularly at risk for improper payments and the department's ability to identify and reduce UI improper payments continues to be a challenge, as with most government operations. The inspector general has recommended more vigilant oversight, more regulation of the unemployment insurance program by increasing the frequency of on-site reviews at state agencies and to continue pursuing legislation that would allow states to use part of recovered fraudulent payments to detect and deter fraud. I mean, this is going to happen. But the bigger thing is, is if you're a victim of it, what do you do, Peter? You know, there's really not much you can do. But what I don't understand is, uh, I, I guess it depends on the level uh, or the size of your company, how you don't know that somebody's filed this claim. Um, right. And maybe I'm not understanding it, but for me, um, what I see out of this is if somebody files for unemployment, I get a notice from the state, and I understand, mm -hmm. you know, here it is, and sometimes I get like three notices. So I'll look at it, I'll see who is this person, did this person work at the firm, um, and and are they entitled to unemployment? And there have been sure. times where people will be here and they only work for a short amount of time. And the next thing you know, they're filing an unemployment claim and they're not entitled to unemployment. And so, you know, you, you just you move to uh, correct that mistake and you alert unemployment of that potential issue. So there is this time for uh, appeals. I guess if you're a really large company and maybe you're working with some sort of HR department, maybe it can get lost in the shuffle. But this seems like an absolutely insane 
number of fraudulent <laughs> things. Well, and it's only really gotten easier because of all the electronic uh, documentation that's required. You don't even I don't even know if you have to show up anymore to file. I don't think you do. I think it's done online, all online. Right. Right. You know, right. I I've heard stories of people who have filed a claim for unemployment before they've even been fired or lost their job. <laughs> <laughs> Now, if they were only that organized at their job, maybe this wouldn't have been a problem in the first place. Like, I you know, I'm anticipating being fired. Yeah. So, you know, I'm going to put my claim in now. So. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, there are, well, you'd like to think there there wouldn't be, but there you, you get you get a W-2 from the government when you receive unemployment benefits. So yeah. if this is something that goes unchecked, you could be not necessarily uh, 100%, but initially up front, you could be liable for some kind of tax burden until you prove that you really didn't get that money. Yeah, absolutely. So absolutely. <laughs> if you're getting a W-2 from the government, you should probably ask questions if you're not supposed to get one. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> then and, then and, you can have fun fighting that battle. You know what? The interesting thing, though, is that, you know, to, to kind of take a, a, a different spin on this, there are times sure. when somebody will get an unemployment payment that they're not entitled to. And oftentimes I hear the excuse, they sent it to me by accident, I'm going to keep it. That's their fault, not mine. <laughs> <laughs> well, that sounds nice in theory. You know, you have to give it back. It's just simple. You just have to give it back. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're not talking about getting a free magazine subscription in the mail here. You're talking about the federal government. They will take what's theirs. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. I'm going to read the magazine. I'm going to keep the check. There you go. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's um the and I'm sure New Jersey doesn't everybody. They they they, they even submit you I think we get like a debit card nowadays, I think. Yeah. Um and that's where your funds go. So <laughs> Yeah, very easy to uh, to get it done. If you're an employer, pay attention. Yeah, absolutely, especially small business. It should be very plain if something something's amiss. Um, a teacher suing a school district. Shocking. But this time it's over Bibles, prayer circles, and ministering on campus. Denver.cbslocal.com telling us that a Colorado teacher is suing a school district, claiming a school is not keeping church and state separate. In the lawsuit, former Florence High School teacher Robert Basevitz says that he experienced religious discrimination at his school. When he formally complained about it, he was transferred to another school in the district, and that's when things elevated to the lawsuit. Personalized Bibles distributed to students, morning prayer circles on campus, and a church pastor regularly on the Florence High School campus ministering with the principal nearby are just a few examples that attorney Paul Maxson says is unconstitutional. Government and public schools need to remain neutral on questions of religion so that you and I are not forced to be exposed to someone else's personal religious beliefs, Maxim said. Maxim represents Bezvitz, who is Jewish, in the, the uh, lawsuit that says that <laughs> the Cowboy Church, gotta love that, at Crossroads has been a regular fixture at the school. Yeehaw. Bezvitz says the church also hosts lunches at the school known as Jesus Pizza. Not to be confused with Jesus Juice from the Michael Jackson liquor cabinet our legal team has been working diligently to settle this matter informally but regretfully we are unable to do so i also want to reassure our community that florence high school has been and always will be or continues to be an educational institution that does not promote religion the majority of the information in the complaint is inaccurate or at best taken out of context fremont re2 superintendent Rhonda roberts said in a statement 
The teacher claims that once he filed a formal complaint, he was moved to another school in the district. The district says it was a move they needed to do for their special education program to accommodate the needs of their students. Now they get to prove that. Um, you know, this is obviously something that's not not new, but what's the biggest hurdle? Is this going to be the biggest hurdle proving the accuracy of the statements, or is it going to be trying to prove that Basevitz was not transferred due to a special education program? You know, I, I think it's going to be a little bit of both there. I think that um, yeah. they have to show, um, you know, exactly the, 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 the basis of this. You know, the thing that disturbs me with this is that, um, ah, you know, it gives Christians a very bad name. Sure. It, it just, it makes them look crazy. And I don't know why, but, you know, this, this ties into the story that we talked about last week where you've got the, um, you know, 19 kids and counting family who mm-hmm. have these, you know, pro-Christian beliefs. And then meanwhile, you've got the eldest kid fondling sleeping sisters. And so, allegedly, uh, although that isn't place for yes. so I guess it's true. Um, but <laughs> he admitted to it, yeah. He did admit to it, so I guess I don't have to say that, but... Yeah, you know, I, I think that, you know, this idea of, of the separation of church and state is 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 such a, a convenient argument for some people at some times. And, and mm-hmm. you know, I think that it's really difficult to separate church and state when you've got the dollar bill, you know, still containing the, the, the language in God we trust. And I I just, it's very difficult for me because I happen to be a religious person. And so I don't have a problem with, with it. Um, I don't think anybody should be discriminated against, but the idea when I hear, you know, maybe an atheist group saying that you should never talk about God, anybody, not just a Christian God, but Muslims can't talk about or refer to God. Jews can't talk about God. Christians can't talk about God. That that becomes you know an issue because now you're really impeding upon people's freedom of belief and religion, and then you sure. weigh that with the story we talked about at the top of the show with the woman from uh, Abercrombie who was Muslim wearing the the, the head um, garb, and they mm-hmm. didn't want to hire her, and now the Supreme Court there is saying, well yeah you you can't discriminate against on the basis of religion. And then you've got this argument that, yeah, but church and state, you, you should separate. I know there's always been a separation of church and state, and I know that there's always been disputes over this, but I think it's a disturbing trend. I think that when you see stories like this, I mean, Jesus pizza just sounds absolutely insane. Um, <laughs> but I think it has that a beard. It, yeah, yeah, I think it makes people look crazy. You know, it makes... Well, you know, you know what's funny? It's something you mentioned, you know, and, and, and you tie this in. There's always – people don't look at things the same way. There is always the argument of the Second Amendment and that there is the, the, the angle in which, well, that's not what they wrote it for. They wrote it for muskets, and they wrote it for this, and they wrote it not for assault weapons. Right. Okay, I see your argument there, and I raise you a religious – separation argument because when they wrote this i'm sure they didn't have in mind schools meetings apparently they didn't have currency involved in it they wrote it because of what existed in england 
and the relationship between the government and the church. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and so it, it becomes overly convenient now, on you know, just like the Second Amendment. You know, how wide do you want to interpret the Constitution? Yep. Yeah. Um, and so you know, in, in this fellow's case, you know, and it, it's funny that you say you know it makes the the you know say the evangelicals, but the the Christian faith look crazy. Um, I think religious <laughs> religious um, operatives. In their <laughs> their efforts to persuade others to believe what they believe, have a tendency to do that to themselves, <laughs> just yeah. like Muslims do. And you, I mean, you can you can take radical Islam and the same thing. God, those guys are crazy. Well, to us, yes. To them, no. And yeah. and in the same same meaning here, this guy, oh, it's crazy. Jesus pizza, he's crazy. Well, to us, yes. To him, no. But the thing is, what's that line? And you know, at what point, like you had said, you know, in school. So, you know, our, you know, and you go back to that Abercrombie and Fitch argument. And okay, so, are you really discriminating against the religion, or are you discriminating against the, um, the practice of the religion? You know, yeah. and the fact that they wear the headscarves. And in school, okay, so you're in school and you have Muslim students and they break a couple times a day for prayer. Do yep. you not allow them to do that in public school? Yeah. Do you, that, not allow, do you not allow Jewish holidays to be observed as excused absences? Absolutely. I remember, you know, as far back as when I was in college, I remember uh, being in a communications course and there was one student who was Muslim and in the middle of the class he would break to to you know roll out his prayer mat and and to pray and nobody sure. thought anything of it now it was a state run university that I was at and so I guess you could make that argument yeah but separation of church and state if you want to pray then you've got to go elsewhere I don't know they, people can carve out exceptions sure. to everything sure. and I think yeah. this will be an ongoing <laughs> debate forever but I think that the the bad part about it is that Regardless of what religion you are, when you take what is an extremist view, even if it's a perceived extremist view, like I would never refer to pizza as being Jesus pizza. I mean, I think that's <laughs> insulting. But um, I think when you yeah. take that extreme view, A, a couple things are going to happen. A, you're going to get publicity. That's why shows like The Duggar Show, where, you know, oh, time for my side hug, you know, can't can't touch you, just side hug. Um, I think that that sort of extremism and the same thing with the polygamy shows, I think that that takes uh, or or brings in a lot of revenue, a lot of interest, a lot of people viewing it, and then your perception is skewed because that's not what's mainstream, but that's what you see. And then when they fall from grace, then it's like, I knew it. I knew all these religions (laughs) were bad. It doesn't make a difference about religion. You know? Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And, and, yeah. and the sad thing is, is when you look at, at at meetings or or schools and stuff like that, at what point are they going to eventually put the put put in place? Look, we're not going to do any religion here. There is no religion. Period. On uh, state funded campuses, uh, property, et cetera. There is nothing. You know, I, over the weekend, I had spoken to uh, some some uh, extended family members, and we were having a discussion about uh, colleges and, and universities and things like that. My view is that you know you're always going to have more of a liberal, liberal overtone in the academic environment. That's just the way that it is in yes. my view. 
And um, when we started to get into a discussion about more political or religious beliefs, I wanted to cut it off because, I mean, that, that, that old phrase, the things that you never talk about to, to family, <laughs> people, politics, religion, I mean, it really is super true because the way we perceive things are so differently and, and there's so much of, um, you know, sort of an individual feeling about certain things. One thing may be important to me, but not to you. And then when you have people who are unwilling to accept your views and genuinely accept them, um, that's when I think a lot of trouble begins. And I think that that's what happens in situations like this, where you're going to have a group that has nothing to do with this, but decides that they're going to exert their opinion because this is not right. And then you've got another group coming in from the other side, and it just blows up. But uh, it's very hard to talk about religion and politics in any way where they're related. Because oh, sure. They're, yeah, no. they're, they're two separate things. You know, religion is an individual personal experience or belief system. Politics is um, capitalism, in my mind, and it's about, yes. you know... <laughs> You know, you hate to to say that it's a bad thing, but I can't think of any politician out there that does not have some level of corruption because of the power that they've been given. Oh, sure. And, yeah. you know, that's what the earlier story that we had lost you, I was talking about the, the Governor Christie issue mm -hmm. with where is his money, where is it going for his security team, you know, I, I was saying that I think that, that Christie is running for office and therefore he is an acceptable target and his op opposition, his opponents, they're always going to find something. But it doesn't matter who you are. If you throw your hat into the political ring, somebody is going to try to knock you down and poke enough holes in your credibility or your um, appearance that, you know, you're going to get detractors saying, yeah, look, he did this and this and this. That's par for the course. Um, but I just don't know of anybody. It's like that Bible verse, you know, he without sin cast the first stone. Oh, uh, sure. People who live in glass houses. I think every politician has been corrupted at some level by the power. Yeah, absolutely. You're absolutely. I think, yeah, you're, no, you're, was it power corrupts and absolute power corrupts? Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. So, so. <laughs> but I think that's there you go. <laughs> but I digress. <laughs> well, let's digress to buses. SEPTA plans to approve a ban on unacceptable ads on buses. Philadelphia.cbslocal.com. The source here, the SEPTA board is expected to approve the banning today, which was a couple days ago, of what they are calling unacceptable ads from businesses. Uh, nothing better than a subjective term to deal with legal precedents. The new advertising policy comes after SEPTA was forced to run anti-Islam ads following a court ruling. That was the, uh, uh, what's her name, Geller. Is it Geller? I think it was Geller. Uh, Gal? Yeah. Uh, this didn't sit well with the people, but since SEPTA accepted other political and other controversial ads in the past, a federal judge ruled that the Transit Authority was legally required to display it. SEPTA did so on 84 buses, receiving a total of $30,000. That will likely not happen again because today's vote will actually solidify a ban on ads that have political, controversial, or those that criticize a particular person or group. 
The thought police are alive and well. The new policy, which is expected to be approved by SEPTA's board today, would also require an advertiser to pay legal bills caused by reactions to an advertisement. If the ban moves forward, tobacco and gun ads would also be prohibited. Uh, I think we're just going to advertise uh, white or black. Yeah. Just, just, yeah. just nothing. We're just going to put nothing on them. Um, I get it. Um, now, is SEPTA a business or oh, it's an authority? Yeah, so it's it is. somewhat of a public entity. It is, and and I think that this is like all stemming from. Remember, a while back we talked about that that ad that was going to run in the New York buses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, it is the same group. Yeah, so you know, look, I I don't know because I'm not a big proponent of government control over everything we do, but at the same time, there does need to be some level. I think that when when there's an advertisement that is aimed at insightful behavior, so you know, inciting something, hatred, violence, aggression, that doesn't have any place in, in today's world. I don't think you should be able to advertise that. Um, but, you know, I, I sort of look at my own views on this and say, yeah, but what line am I creating between the freedom of speech and, um, you know, my own personal beliefs? But I think if you are a public entity and you are going to permit advertising on a public bus, you are serving the public. And so you should not have ads on the bus that are going to segregate, incite, or create some sort of aggressive response in the public. So, you know, but then again, you go down and now tobacco's out, can't have a tobacco. I don't, Martin, I don't remember ever Calvin, seeing it. Calvin Klein underwear. Yeah, yeah. I mean, those, so, those are. Uh, who wants to run around looking at someone's uh, broxer briefs? Yeah, but where does it stop? You know, I think that exactly. this needs to be clearly defined. You can't just say unacceptable ads. What does that mean? It's unacceptable because I don't. <laughs> you know, Marky Mark. Remember Marky Mark back in the eighties and So, you know, I don't like him. I find that unacceptable. Well, and here's the thing is, is, you know, there are certain, I mean, you, you take into, into consideration, let's use Islam, their beliefs in, as far as how women are to be dressed or how they're supposed to behave. You put something that is unacceptable to their beliefs on a billboard, it's unacceptable. Yeah. So, and yeah. like you say, it's, it becomes very subjective. And, you know, who's going to define those standards and who's going to approve those standards? And then who's going to defend those standards when we go to court? Yep. <laughs> but but this goes back to, you know, I mean, and again, it's that it's that it's that continual um, push by the needs of the few trying to outweigh the needs of the many. And eventually it's going to be a situation. You know, what? we're not going to put advertisements on buses anymore. We're going to cough that revenue up, which helps the bus run because nobody wants to agree with what. We want to put on there. Right. And then your bus fare is going to increase in order to cover the. the oh, bus. oh, no, no. Well, Peter, we'll, we'll, we'll subsidize it from government funds. Yes, that's right. <laughs> that's what just got shot down in Michigan recently. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, it, it, they all kind of tie together and it, it is going to be, uh, you know, who is going to have the last say on this you know it's, is it going to get as high as the supreme court and you know when you have if you're looking around your community what's on your buses 
on my buses are still ads for the uh, Rockefeller Center uh, Christmas show. So, I mean, we're <laughs> still, <laughs> still behind. I still have got the dirty we'll rock. <laughs> and I don't mean that kind of dirty. I mean the signs are dirty because it's from Christmas. <laughs> Just hoping to reuse them next year and save the advertisers yeah. some money. Yeah. <laughs> well, anyway, <laughs> not a surprise. But yeah, look around you and, and take, and that's the thing. You know, look around you each day. Look around you, and you see, you can think of everything you look at. Well, I can see where that would be offensive. Well, I can see where that would be offensive. You know, you take a gun ad. It's they're selling a gun. It's it's from Winchester. The ad is from Winchester. The model. X, XR5 3030, new this, this year out for hunting, or not even for anything. It's just new this year. It's a gun. It's not doing anything. It's like putting a hammer yep. on a sign. It's a tool. Yep. But, you know, that's you know, someone's going to be offended by it. Maybe not a hammer, but a gun, I guarantee. Um, Tracy Morgan, Walmart, settling a New Jersey crash lawsuit. Um, now, Peter, were you in the running for this uh, lawsuit? Uh, no, I, I was not. Nor was I in the no. running for, for anything <laughs> involving him. He, he did not call me. Of course. He, no, he, he must didn't. have lost my number. I'm calling Peter Lamont. However he talks. Um, very funny on 30 Rock. Courthousenews.com telling us that Tracy Morgan and Walmart have settled a lawsuit stemming from the June 2014 crash on the New Jersey Turnpike that se- severely injured the actor-comedian and unfortunately left one of his friends dead. In a filing in the Trenton, New Jersey Federal Court on Wednesday, Morgan and the retail giant, of course, asked the court to seal documents pertaining to related uh, to the related settlement and related request for attorney's fees. No one needs to know how much we got or how much we paid. The crash in which Morgan was gravely injured occurred in the early morning hours of June 7th on the New Jersey Turnpike northbound spur. At the time, Morgan and other comedians and friends were returning from a comedy show in Dover, Delaware. A Walmart truck driven by Kevin Roper rear-ended the comedian's limo near Cranberry, New Jersey. The accident left Morgan, the former SNL and 30 Rock star, with brain injuries, a broken leg, broken nose, and broken ribs. James McNair, a comedian and friend of Morgan, who went by the name Jimmy Mack, was killed, and a number of the other performers and friends that are hiding in the comedian's SUV limousine were injured. Investigators with the NTSB found that Roper was driving 65 in a 45 construction zone and had logged 13 hours and 32 minutes of driving time at the uh, time of the collision. The agency said the legal limit for a truck driver's shift is 14 hours. Roper was charged with death by auto and assault by auto. Morgan and three passengers in the vehicle sued claiming Walmart should have known that the driver had been awake for more than 24 hours. They claim that the driver also had a commute of 700 miles from his home in Georgia to work in Delaware. The carpool in that one. Yeah, it is. (laughs) Thinking about a plane, which is unreasonable. The lawsuit also claims that the Walmart driver fell asleep at the wheel. Walmart filed an answer to the negligence complaint on Monday, claiming that plaintiff's complaint fails to set forth any facts which are sufficient to support a direct and or vicarious claim of negligence as to Walmart. Walmart denied all of the allegations regarding personal liability for the company. It claimed that the plaintiff's injuries were caused in whole or in part by plaintiff's failure to properly wear an appropriate available seatbelt restraint device and that by failing to exercise ordinary care in making use of available seatbelts upon information and belief, plaintiffs acted unreasonably and in disregard for plaintiff's own best interests. Ouch. Um, <laughs> I like that. But you know, it didn't hold water. 
here's the thing with this, and I used to do a ton of automobile defense litigation when I had, you know. That's where I was going next. <laughs> a ton of this. And as as big a name as Tracy Morgan is, this comes down to um, the equivalent of a standard insurance defense case with automobiles. And the same mm-hmm. language, I, I, I view it like this. If you have handled one auto defense claim, you can handle 500 of them because they all follow <laughs> the same formula. And one of the defenses that you're always going to allege if you are the defendant in an automobile case like this, when someone doesn't have their seatbelt on, even if you're unsure of that, in your, your answer as the defendant, you're going to list as your separate or affirmative defense that they failed to exercise reasonable caution or they failed to utilize a seatbelt. And that's going to try to, to go against the percentage of liability. So in some states, they've got a negligence standard with damages that say, if the plaintiff is more than um, 51% at fault, they don't recover mm-hmm. anything, nothing. So okay. if you can show that... Yes, there was an auto accident. The auto accident was an accident, and there was some negligence, but only a percentage of it that was below 50%, and that had you been wearing your seatbelt, then you wouldn't have had these catastrophic injuries. It's possible for a defendant to show that you would have greater than 50% liability for not wearing your seatbelt. So... That's a standard defense tactic. It is something that's done in all other defense cases. Other mm-hmm. standard defenses are going to be you were on the cell phone, you were distracted. You know, it used to be years ago when there were cassette players, you were distracted oh. with the cassette player, then it became distracted with uh, the DVD player or the CD player. And so these things evolve over time. And some of these defense cases, they even get to the point of where if it's alleged, let's say that the plaintiff says, right before the crash, I saw the girl that hit me on the phone, and she denies it, they can even go so far as to subpoena your cell phone records and then look oh, at sure. what time you were on the phone and then say, yeah, you sure. were on the phone at the time you hit me. So this is a big, pro, high-profile case. I don't view it as something that was super complex to defend, but... Mm-hmm. Obviously, because of the publicity associated with it, and let's face it, I think that Walmart cares about getting their product into stores and not necessarily about the safety of its drivers or others, um, I think that they settled simply as a means of, A, keeping this quiet, and B, sure. to make it go away. I mean, it, 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 this is a... documents. Yeah, exactly. It's a multi-million dollar settlement for sure. I mean, there's a death here. So, I mean, multi-million, it's got to be in the 10, 15, 20 million dollar range. But Oh, sure. When you consider Tracy Morgan's earning potential, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we're talking a ton of money, but I think that for them, it's probably a drop in the bucket. And... It was a good decision. You want to know something? I want to make a point about Walmart, and and I don't understand this. And maybe somebody who is affiliated with Walmart listening to this can explain it to me. And it has nothing to do with Tracy Morgan. Okay. This is a complete digression from anything relevant to anything we've ever talked about. 
This is just a personal gripe. I will occasionally go into Walmart. I like the fact that they have a lot of variety there. But sometimes it's crowded at Walmart. The lines are long. Something that they have online is not available in the store. And I need to purchase something online. For example, I bought a grill gazebo. It's a little gazebo that covers your grill. It's less than $150. It's not a big deal. But I had purchased one from Walmart a few years ago. And like an idiot, when it snowed really hard, I didn't clear off the little roof thing. And then it collapsed. So I wanted a new one. I went online. First of all, you can't get anything accurately done online on Walmart's site. And then No, it gives you way too many choices. Wait, and then the delivery issue. Okay, if you're going to stick a truck driver in a truck for 14, 15, 24 hours at a time, is there any way you could divert him to deliver my grill gazebo? That's all I'm saying. <laughs> if Walmart were to perfect their online experience and have deliveries actually come on time, I think they might make a lot of money. My wife and I were discussing this this morning because, you know, I'm waiting for this stupid grill gazebo to come. It's not huge. You've got to put it together yourself. And it's been weeks now. And I look up online and it says processing, processing. But if, you know, you walk into to the store, you can go pick something up and leave with it. You go to another online retailer, and they'll send it to you in a timely fashion. Walmart and Target are two of the worst online shopping experiences that I've ever had. Do you think that's because <laughs> they make so much money from the people that go into the store? And they don't care about the stuff? Yeah. The, yeah, the difference is between, in my opinion, from being in the logistics industry, the difference is between the Walmart model and the Amazon model. Yeah. And the, yeah, and, and, and the Walmart model is certainly, um, when, when you buy something in the store, it is pretty much immediately um, requisitioned on the supply side. The, the degree of separation between, um, between purchase and, and order is amazing within their retail environment. But it also has to deal with their, um, their distribution network, which is warehouse-based and, and then truck-based. Where Amazon, they have, they're more in tune with small package. The UPS leaves a trailer there, and it's broken immediately and shipped in its, in its separate box, separate ways. Walmart doesn't do that unless you pay extra, I would assume. I don't understand it. I just don't. where's my gazebo, Walmart? Where's my gazebo? <laughs> so you ordered it to deliver to your house? I did because I couldn't find it in any of the stores. You know, I, I don't know. Look, Walmart has always had a ton of issues and negative publicity from everything from employment issues to you know harassment and discrimination. Obviously, here with with a, with a truck driver that that was you know awake too long. Uh, or whatever the real issue is here, and I don't know that we'll ever know now that this has been sealed. But um, <laughs> from from a uh, in all seriousness, from a business model standpoint, I just guess that they do so much business in store that they don't need to focus so much on the online experience because sure. the majority of people are are going to just go into the store and pick something up, but. You know, you're right. You compare it to an Amazon model where you've got drones dropping stuff off at your house. 
<laughs> yeah, you better watch out. You careful what you wish for. <laughs> and he's wrapping a hundred pound gazebo on top of your head. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've you've probably read the the book Good to Great, I assume. No, I have not. Tell me about oh, this. And that's that that is good to great is a is a great example of how different operations um flourish in their particular world. You know, you look at McDonald's and and remember McDonald's, it was never about ordering anything special. They made burgers with ketchup, mustard, pickles, and onions, and they shipped them down the line and you ate it. Well, Burger King changed that. Burger King, you'd have it your way. Um, now you, if you go to some, you take a, a model like Church's Chicken, Church's Fried Chicken, or Roasted Chicken, they don't even stay open that late. They do what they do, and they do what they do well, and that's all they do. And they do it within the confines of their operational procedure. And that's what McDonald's used to do. They had to change their entire operation to do what they're doing now, which is, you know, more customized ordering. They never used to do that. No, that's true. And that's very interesting. Uh, I think I'm going to pick that book up and look at it because yeah. it makes a lot of sense. And, you know, let's just apply this. I know we're getting off topic, but it's interesting. <laughs> apply this to some of the, the business models that we see out there. Sometimes a business can get so... Um, far off of what they're good at and they try to do a whole bunch of other things that it actually has a negative impact on them when maybe if they focused on what they were good at they would have far more success i guess you know spreading yourself too thin or expanding beyond the bounds of what you were really expert at sure you can't be everything to everybody yeah so i i think that there's a, a lot to be said for you know, places that uh, will pick what they're good at and stick to it, and that's what you get when you go there, and you know it, and they make uh, a good amount of, of money doing it. But I, yeah. I, you know, I think the the McDonald's thing, if they introduced a new product or a new healthier line, I think because we've seen that throughout the years, but they've already established mm-hmm. themselves as such a mainstay in, in the culture that you're never going to see somebody say, all right, we're not going to go to McDonald's unless they take their original you know, menu um, uh, stuff off. <laughs> Unless they pull a new Coke. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, new Coke's a perfect example. Sure. <laughs> of what not to do. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what? It's so funny because I was watching a show about new Coke, and as I started to reflect on it, I thought to myself, I think I might have liked new Coke, but I don't remember now. But I'm pretty sure that I did like new Coke. And then, you know, I wanted <laughs> to refresh my recollection. But you can't, you can't get new Coke. But that's a prime example. Prime example. Yeah, do do what you do and do it well. Yeah. <laughs> They'll continue to pay lawsuit settlements. I guarantee it. They do it well. Uh, musicians take on major movie studios. My saw this is something near and dear to my heart. Uh, CourthouseNews.com explains to us that Canadian and U.S. musicians and composers sued the major movie studios Tuesday for reusing soundtracks without paying musicians in violation of a collective bargaining agreement. On Tuesday, the American Federation of Musicians of the United States and Canada sued the six biggest U.S. film studios in federal court, Columbia Pictures, Paramount, 20th Century, Universal, Walt Disney, and Warner Brothers. The union claims the studios routinely reuse music and soundtracks in clips longer than the union agreement allows and without paying for it. Among the offending movies were Titanic, Die Hard, and The Breakfast Club. This is an old, there's got to be a statute of limitations here, and a host of TV shows, according to the lawsuit. The union says the collective bargaining agreement allows studios to use up to two minutes of music from another movie in a soundtrack, but must pay the musicians for it. The fees are $1,500 for up to one minute of music and $750 each for each 
32nd period after the first minute, which still comes out to $1,500 a minute, according to the complaint. Sound clips may be used with footage of the original movie for a lower fee, so you can include the movie with the music. It's not exclusive at that point. Seven fifty for up to one minute and three seventy five for each of the two following thirty second periods. Again, seven fifty a minute. The agreement requires studios to pay musicians when studio licenses license clips of music to other entities for TV shows and movies. But the studios have refused to pay musicians for the music they reuse and use more than two minutes of the- some songs. According to the complaint, the union says it only knows of a tiny fraction of the studio's unreported, improper, and uncompensated use or reuse of theatrical motion picture music soundtracks. Hundreds of musicians have been cheated of wages since 2010. According to the complaint, the union demands damages for breach of contract. Um, this is uh, <laughs> this you know it boils down to uh, good contract and trademarks, I would guess. Yeah, I mean, what? Let's. You're a musician. For copyrights. So What's your take on this from a musician's standpoint? Do you agree that they should be compensated? If that's what the contract allows, absolutely. I mean, musicians are routinely shunned as unskilled laborers. Yeah. Yeah. I, I got news for you. <laughs> no, I think you're right. And I think that, 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 you know, a lot of these major studios take advantage of the actual artist and they, you mm-hmm. know, infringe on the artist's rights. And I think when you're up against a major studio, what, what limited rights you have, it's very difficult to go in there and fight with a team of lawyers. But I, I think that this is a good thing because I think that, you know, you have to compensate it as the artist. You know, I, I think that artists, especially musicians, don't get enough in the way of a fair shake as somebody like an actor would. You know, Oh, uh, right. Uh, no, no, I don't. Just, I don't see it at all. I think that, that there's well, just – why is that, though? Well, there's a couple of reasons. One is it's it's always in the background. You're not the person up front. I mean, look at Millie Vanilli. They weren't pretty, so they had somebody else sing it for them. Um, you know, you, you've got it's, to it's, – if you're not up front, you're not making the money. The other thing that's happened here that's probably forced the hand on this, and probably nobody would have said boo if sales of recorded music weren't in the toilet. Yeah. Our artists. The problem is, is there's no such thing necessarily as performance rights. When you, when a radio station gets paid for, or, or excuse me, when a radio station pays for music, they pay for the writer. They don't pay for the the performance. The writers get that money, and so the only way that musicians used to get paid was I sold a CD. I've got that's my CD. I pay my I through the publishing company company pay the writers. I through the publishing company pay the label. But now those days are gone. You don't, you don't, you, I mean, there's sure there's some downloads. Absolutely. But you have to figure out as a musician how to make free work for you. And how that works is you need to just throw your music out there and hope everybody goes to your show. And right. that's part of why picket prices are the way they are. So had, had, had that not occurred, you probably wouldn't have heard anything. This, I mean, just for instance, look how far back they're talking about. Yeah. Titanic, Die Hard, The Breakfast Club. I don't yeah. think the Breakfast Club was right on the beginning of CD sales. Yeah. <laughs> so that's that's basically what, what I would assume has happened here. But uh, fair is fair. If they have a contract, they have a contract. You'd like to think now, when did it expire? Did it expire on a Saturday? <laughs> no, 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 not Saturday. <laughs> they don't count anymore, remember? So now it's Monday. That's, that's right. <laughs> Monday, yes, that's right. We have precedent. <laughs> so we'll we'll see what happens on that. But I assume there's going to be a... I, I can't believe that the studios have a leg to stand on if they have a contract and they're supposed to be doing what they do. And it's not like the unions 
And here's the other thing, too, a union. So you've got a, a union of um, songwriters. What are they going to do, strike? Yeah. There's a there's a thousand people right behind them who will happily scab their music to you. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> so you know, I have a, I have a, we'll a see question for you though. A little off topic, but yeah, since we're answer off topic today, I'm going to ask it. Um, have you seen in the in the the music industry? Have you seen a change in the way that people are promoting themselves? You know, I've seen a lot of independents who are are up and coming, and even some you know, uh, bands that are well-known, they're releasing a lot more on their own nowadays and looking at YouTube and Vivio and, and, and some of these other outlets. Have you seen a shift in artists getting away from the standard contracts and dealing with agents and trying to do things themselves? Or is that just oh, a sure. limit? No, and there's, a, there's a lot of reasons for it, I think. Um, one is the availability of uh, recording equipment. It used to be you got fronted, let's see, a, 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 a label signed you for $50,000. They said, okay, great, here's your $50,000. Now we're going to take $30,000 of that and record your album. Um, and then $10,000 is going to go to your tour. <laughs> so you're going to end up with about 500 bucks each. Um, in that, that when, when the proliferation of recording equipment um, became readily available and, and inexpensive, then you didn't have you weren't crutched by the industry anymore to borrow money to record something. Now you just you just do it in the comfort of your basement or your your living room. Many right. of great albums have been uh, Dave Grohl um, uh, from the Foo Fighters. One, his last album was recorded. The album prior to that was recorded in his garage, I believe. Yeah, yeah. That's um, so you know, and, and I'm sure he had some very nice tools to do it with. But the fact of the matter is, he didn't. He was not in a situation where you were to worry about money paying for it. how many bands do you hear about are broke back in the day trying to get things done. It's because everybody's got their hand out. Well, there's no more money to put in hands either. Yeah. And so, you know, it goes back to that same, you've got to get your music out there and get people to hear it, get people to like it. And MySpace really opened that up, um, you know, getting, getting uh, as a vehicle, to not Napster really because that was just file sharing things that people liked. MySpace right. was what was what things at the forefront is. I can share this to everybody around the world for nothing. Um, and then YouTube and Justin Bieber and of course uh, Rebecca Black. Um, <laughs> you can get famous from YouTube. Yeah. And so there's a lot of there's a lot more outlets now to get your music out. And there's a lot more ways to produce your music. And with auto-tune, I have auto-tune in my computer, and everybody else does. Um, so, you know, if you do have a problem with pitchiness, it's no big deal. You can fix it, make it sound great. Um, and so unless you're looking for a particular sound, like the Muscle Shoals sound or the Studio City sound, which is gone now, you don't need them anymore. Yeah. Um, and that makes life easy. So you're, you're paying a lot less for your music. So for you to put it out there for free um, and, and take some shortcuts – um, and, and American Idol has changed the game too. That's, you know, that's the, true. The, the singing, the singing shows. You know, the instant fame from these—I don't call it reality television; I call it contestant-based programming—has um, changed the game as well. You know, how many people go on? You know, if, if, if the, the worst thing you can do for your career is to win American Idol. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> that's the worst thing to do. The best thing is to make it to like the finals or the semis. You you got a much more promising career. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, it's so. really, really true, though. I mean, that's that's true. Mm-hmm. You know what I wanted to ask you, too? I mean, we might as well just finish out the show completely off topic because this is just <laughs> too much fun. So, All right. All right, so here's my question. Have you ever seen or are you familiar with uh, the Willis clan? The Willis clan. Oh, but they, I'm starting to type. They're a family, a musical family, and apparently they were on the America's Got Talent show, the one that, that Howard Stern is on. And now they've got okay. on TLC. It's a reality-based program. And it, um, ah. it probably will take over the place of 19 kids and counting. Um, I was I just counting the kids, actually. <laughs> I, I think that... You know what's interesting, just as an aside, this family, I've seen the show, I actually like it, um, this family seems to be kind of more realistic and more like just a real nice group of people, and it's not so much uh, of the stuff that was being espoused on 19 Kids Accounting. But what's mm-hmm. fascinating for me about this is that they're all, first of all, super good looking and really talented, and they produce mm-hmm. these albums out of their house. And the dad is the is the producer, and all the kids have this music ability and dancing ability, and it's so it's it's a spin or twist on country mixed with some Gaelic or Irish uh, sounds, and so it's really a fascinating sound. It's a nice sound, and and the music is good, but they seem to have grown in popularity now to the point where they're on network television or not network but cable television TLC. All because sure. of their appearance on America's Got Talent, but it's 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 still fascinating for me to see that they're recording out of their house and producing oh, sure. out of their house. And I'm on their website right now, which I will um, share with everybody watching. Um, and there's this 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 story here, or little clip, or whatever, and it says that there's a Walmart CD release. The Wallace Clan goes to Walmart all the time, but this visit is like. <laughs> So how do they get, you know, from producing music in their in their house to TLC to Walmart to how does that happen for a musician? Um, you, a you have to be talented. <laughs> Number one, it sounds like these by folks are. B you be good looking, and it sounds like these folks are. Um, but you have to put on a quality product as well. So I mean, sure, you know, they may not the album that they recorded may or may not have been recorded in their home it may have been fronted by tlc and and use some real professional gear but it it may have been um and then you have a good agent (laughs) because you know that tlc probably had to buy the heck out of their release from america's got talent right 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 and you know and then you know that is that i think the, the, the 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 linchpin or the catalyst is america's got talent and they do such a good job and, and American Idol does it too. Uh, the voice tries of, of packaging the individual or group and say, Oh, you know, maybe they had a, you know, a sick dad or this happened and Oh, what was them? And gosh, they overcame this and it's just the great American triumph. And here they are on the show. They're incredible. Here you are prepackaged for your consumption. Right. Right. And it sounds you like, know, it's, 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 it's it's, it's, it's a great gig if you can get it. It sounds like that, that is probably along the lines of something that um, the network must have thought about. 
first of all, I mean, they were musicians first producing music, and it's really good, high-quality music. It sounds great. Sure. But then they get on to um, America's Got Talent, and now people fall in love with them. I mean, even Howard Stern was, was in love with them. And then the next thing you know, you've got TLC. But TLC is packaging them as you're describing because there was some tragedy in the father's life. He lost his siblings in a, in a horrific car crash when he was young. So there is that sort of, um, you know, look at this, this this really great family who has overcome, and, and here they are. And now, as a residual effect, their album sales should increase. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I'm sure they've signed an exclusive deal with Walmart to carry those. Right, right. Yeah, it says right here on the website. Walmart's, Walmart's not stupid either. <laughs> yep. Plus two bonus points. Well, Walmart. <laughs> Whether or not it'll take two weeks to get it to their house, though. <laughs> well, that's a different story, as I still wait for my grill gazebo. <laughs> that's right. Grilling in the rain. Yeah. <laughs> the sun. That's um, yeah, it's, 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 it's just become a – the music industry has become – I'm surprised. You would probably know more about it than I. Is there an increase in entertainment lawyers over the last 10 years? You know – there's always an increase because there's an increase in lawyers, unfortunately. Uh, there are just <laughs> far too many lawyers. And, and you know, it's so interesting because I was actually contemplating uh, a, a video series. You know, typically I'm giving out information about, like last, last week we did, we finished up with the top five reasons not to sue. But I'm actually contemplating doing a video series about um, reasons not to become a lawyer. Or uh, something about you know the reality of being a lawyer because I think that it's that sounds so, like a TLC show. <laughs> it does. Uh, Why not? Um, be, don't be a lawyer with Peter Lachlan. <laughs> <laughs> you know there are so many misconceptions about being a lawyer, and and as I continue in this practice for years and years and years, I mean I, I see more of the negative side of it. And it's both from negative from from a client um, kind of client contact standpoint, and from an industry standpoint, and from a regulatory standpoint, and then from what lawyers you know the makeup of lawyers, um, and of course I'm generalizing, but it just seems like man, you really have to know what you're getting yourself into before you step into oh, this. Sure. Prof- it's not L.A. law, and that's you know, for sure. It's just, but that's why I'm going to save it. And I think we'll talk about it in a video series because I think it would be interesting. Um, obviously, yeah, look at there. Better Call Saul, <laughs> the, yeah. the, the closing scene, the closing scene of Better Saul, Saul Better Call Saul last uh, season was, I know what stopped me from keeping that money and it won't stop me again. <laughs> yes. You know, and I, I love Better Call Saul because it is so realistic. It is, Really, if you are a, a small-time lawyer or a solo practitioner um, or you're in a large firm, Better Call Saul, for me, is the most realistic show about lawyers ever because what Saul goes through as he develops his practice is exactly what most lawyers without a lot of family <laughs> connections experience. You know, he's sitting in the back of a, 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 a nail polish place, right? And he's got this sure. tiny little office, and he's pretending that, that he's got a secretary. And, you know, so many solo practitioners out there experience that. So it's a perfect show. But to get back to your question about the entertainment lawyers, there are too many sure. lawyers. So 
yes, some of them branch off into entertainment law, but more um, more than most will pick up entertainment law as a component of their business or contract practice. Mm-hmm. And okay. once they handle one or two artists, then they become entertainment lawyers, you know, and, and you take that with sure. a grain of salt. But I get a, a lot of calls from musicians all the time, and a lot of them are, for whatever reason, uh, it, it's more rap artists than it is any other form of music. And mm-hmm. the stories that I hear from them, I mean, I've had some stories, and I, I wish I could remember, but uh, there was a, a, a rap slash hip-hop band from the 90s that was very, very popular. It was not it was not Bell Biv DeVoe, but it was something like that that had called, and they were trying to sort of recreate themselves, and we talked for a while. And um, it's amazing how the record labels had just taken all of the money that they ever earned right. from them, left them with so little, and then dropped them. And, you know, here they are. They couldn't afford to even hire a lawyer at that point because they were so... Such, um, you know, they were in so much desperate need of money. They were all working at retail jobs, and you know, here they had a, a great career in the '90s. Perhaps they didn't save the best, but that's so hard for young kids, I think, to see how you know important it is to save, especially when you've got people like uh, you know Justin Bieber out there flaunting his money, and you know, you don't know what. <laughs> He's really doing with it, but at some point for these non-Justin Bieber artists, these one-hit wonder groups, it, it's tough because then they can't find a lawyer. And you know, some of these guys were telling me horror stories about the agents that they were coming in contact with. You know, and the agents. Well, that's they, why. That's why it asks how many how many people were not affiliated with labels anymore because yeah. of that reason. Yeah, I mean, in my opinion, about somebody scamming you. I mean, I've probably mm-hmm. in the last year spoken to at least 16 or 17 artists, all of whom, wow. the exception of maybe two, complained about agent issues and how the agent was keeping things from them and not acting in their best interest. And, you know, they couldn't understand why uh, gigs were being booked and then canceled and it had nothing to do with the band. And this this is, you know, rap. And then I've had some on the on the metal side as well who have called and they've experienced the same thing. So it's not that it's necessarily a, a, a genre issue. It seems to be across the board that music agents can be slimy characters, as can lawyers. <laughs> there you go. A lot, of, a lot of agents probably were at one time lawyers. Yeah, or vice versa. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, but, yeah, I, know that, I think, yeah, you look at it, it there's, there's, there's a – and you got to look too at when those metal and those rap artists were popular. They're on the front end of that CD explosion, and things changed, you know, and in, in, in how much you were getting for different stuff. I mean, there's there's a real issue with what they were collecting from their agents, or excuse me, from their companies versus what they do now. And, and anything they're on, they're, they're on their own now. They they have to go out and make money on the road, and it's 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 it is what it is. Yeah. Yeah, and, and maybe that's the maybe that's why uh, up and coming artists are looking at the self promotion because nowadays it's so much easier to create a website or an online store for sure. yourself. You don't need to spend a hundred thousand dollars on a designer somewhere, so you can mm. produce your music the way you want it, and then you can promote it and and publish it 
the way you want it on your own terms. I think that's a nice element to uh, you know what's going on with technology, to have that freedom as an artist. Because isn't that what your art is about, having the freedom to create what you want, not being told? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and then that, plus have all those hands in your pockets as well. And iTunes is bad enough. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not cheap to be on iTunes. I, I, you're on, I, you're, your things are on iTunes, aren't they? Yes. Ours your, are free. Uh, podcast? Yeah. So. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. And that's a little bit different, so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Once, so as, once you once you get you start selling music on iTunes, you realize how bad it can be. So, as an artist yourself, um, would you say that the vast majority of artists don't like the way that that we've digitized music and, and the iTunes structure? Mm, I think from ignorance and old school, they don't like it because they think that it used to be so grand that you know you could sell CDs, you could sell albums and make money and digital sharing didn't kill your revenues. And you've got people like Lars Ulrich from Metallica and, and folks like that saying how bad it really truly is. But, <clears throat> excuse me, the, own, the last bastion of control that the record labels still have is radio and these big radio conglomerates. You've got Cumulus, Citadel, these guys, I think Cumulus bought Citadel. Um, they are still pretty in bed with the labels to, to get music. So it's, I equate right now personally to what it was like in probably the 60s when anybody had a chance that could make a decent product. You could, you could, you could get your record printed back then everywhere. You could, I, I know guys that signed small deals with labels in the area and, and they made a little bit of money back then. Um, but it was very easy to get a record deal in the sixties and because it was new and it's very easy now to get just as easy to get your music out there. It's just all about the promotion. And like you said, you know, it's building that website, understanding how the web works in right. Google ads and Facebook and all those things. And it's going to cost you money. Um, but the ability to get it, distributed now is is just as easy as it was in the 60s but the ability to get it on the uh, on the radio is never going to change until labels are out of the game now you think that holds true for satellite radio like xm and and you know the like slacker and and streaming services there there's i'm I'm sure there's if they're not in bed with them yet they're they're very very tight um but i know of people that have larger regional bands that have gotten airplay on the satellites. Right, right. So I think because of how they structure their, um, oh, their, uh, their playlists in trying to diversify more, it's it's easier for those bands. I know there's a band out of Detroit called the Infatuations, uh, friends of mine. Um, they free plug. They have um, gotten in bed with Pandora and with a couple of the satellite systems. Our channels. So there's there's a way in, and you don't have to be in with the, the labels, but it's not as easy as you'd like it to be. And it's never going to be easy as long as there's big players in the game on both sides. You know, um, as we're talking about this, I happen to be a huge music fan. I, I, I've never been in a band. I do play instruments. I play the piano. I play the bagpipes. I do play instruments, the guitar, and I love it. And I find myself not being able to kind of work during the day without having some music on in some form. And sure. certain 
styles of music I'll listen to, you know, during certain time periods of the day where I'm doing certain kinds of work. So for me, music is is critical for, you know, my life force. Um, but you know what would be really an interesting topic, Bob, for us to talk about, maybe even on a separate show at some point, it would really be fascinating to take a band or musician or an artist at, at one at a time and sort of go through, break down what we see from your standpoint as a musician, my standpoint as an attorney, and and combine that to, sh- to show how this particular artist succeeded in the business sure. of music. You know, because that all ties into what we do on this program. So it would be interesting. And I have a couple of friends um, that are very close. Um, and that's, that's an interesting. Um, did you watch Rising Star? No. It was on ABC. It, it was their answer to American Idol. I know that it was short-lived. Um, uh, a gal from, from, from locally here got onto that, and she's, she's made some headway out in Los Angeles. So she, she would be a great person to talk with. Another friend of mine that was, almost made it onto the televised portion of America's Got Talent but didn't want to play the game. They said, we'd rather have you play something like this. He's like, I don't want to play something like that. And I said, well, thanks for coming. Goodbye. <laughs> but he, in the same token, he has deals with major guitar manufacturers, so he's making headway as well. And so, versus, you know, you have some smaller artists that are on the way up, you know, and they could learn from that, from from what they did right and what they did wrong. I I'm really excited about this. I think this could be a good thing. I don't know if you've ever listened to you ever listen to Eddie Trunk, Eddie Trunk show. Oh yeah, yeah. So it, that show is interesting for me just because I happen to like you know heavy metal. Um, a, a, along with a variety of other um, sort of, of, of styles of music. Good save. But, Good save. Yeah. But, <laughs> <laughs> but, <laughs> I like classical too. <laughs> I do. I go, I've been to a Barry Manilow concert twice. Okay. I'm not ashamed to say you're, it. You're breaking up. You're breaking up. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what would really be, first of all, I'd like to hear some feedback from you know anybody that, that's listening live today or downloading at a later date. Let me know what you think about this idea because to add to our show schedule, we do a lot, you know, the live legal Q and A, and um, we do the, the interviews with some of the the, the people that um, you know are in the business world. That's that's been helpful, and, and I we've received a lot of positive feedback. But if we created a show, whether it's a half an hour or or whatnot, once a week where we talked or focused primarily on the music industry. And then compared, you know, or contrasted the the music industry, the business, and created sort of a show out of that. I think that would be fascinating because there's so much business that that you can learn from the music industry. And seeing that um, it, it's something that it affects everybody. I mean, I remember when Lars from Metallica started with the whole Napster issue. Some people just absolutely hated him because they didn't want to pay him for sure. his music, you know. And then I think it, it it ultimately at some point because I used to be a very big Metallica fan. I think that it showed people a business side of the industry and the artists that people were turned off by, and so a lot of people started looking at Metallica as a group of sellouts as opposed to mm-hmm. what they saw in the in the you know early '90s and late '80s, mid '80s. <clears throat> you know, master of puppets and things like that. And they looked at them and they said, you know, you're, you're a sellout because all you care about is money. But then the idea of, well, wait a minute, this is their music and why should it be stolen from them? So 
So I think it's a, an interesting idea. What do you think about this idea? No, absolutely. Sounds like a lot of a lot of fun. And actually, I think uh, between the two of us, we probably can get in touch with a few people to make it interesting. Yeah, and then you get to talk to me one more time per week, and then your wife would be exactly. even happy. See how it just <laughs> talking about music and other things she doesn't understand. <laughs> All right, so here's not what that she's do. not intelligent. I I would never think you said that, Bob. Ever, I understand. Of course not. She did choose <laughs> to marry me. <laughs> so here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna wrap up for today. I mean, I I know that we got well off track from our uh, week in review, but I think this was a really interesting topic that led to me having this brainstorm. And now we're going epiphany. to wait. Yes, it was an epiphany. Absolutely an epiphany. <laughs> um, and maybe when I get home, maybe I'll find my grill gazebo. But we'll see. I'm not going <laughs> to hold my breath. <laughs> Someone from Walmart's working on that right now. That's right. <laughs> They're going to stick, uh, stick my, uh, my grill, hopefully not in that driver that, that crashed the uh, you know, Tracy Morgan caravan. Because oh, they're going to stick it somewhere. Jeez, yes. <laughs> so here's what we're going to do. We're going to end for today, but I want to invite all of you out there who listen to the show or watch it live on YouTube, Blog Talk Radio, wherever you're seeing us, downloading it, however you're getting it. I want to, to invite you to comment on this idea that, that Bob and I just brainstormed about with uh, respect to maybe a 30-minute-a-week show that's dedicated to the business of music, where we're going to talk about musicians. We'll pick one musician a week, talk about them and what they've done to become successful or not successful, and we'll talk about some of the legal issues as well as, as general business and, and artistry issues. And let us know what you think about that idea, because Bob is desperately looking to find another excuse to talk to me one more time during the week. And so... Let and, and, me, the longer I'm in the studio, the better. Yeah. <laughs> Stays out of trouble. So we're trying to keep Bob out of trouble. Um, but let me know what you think about that idea. If that's a show that you'd be interested in, I certainly know that Bob and I would be interested in doing it. And I, I could just see having artists on the show talking about their experiences as well as us picking some of our favorite artists and looking at them. You know, for me, I happen to be a huge Jimmy Buffett fan. And Jimmy Buffett is a merchandising machine well beyond what his talent in music is. Um, so we could pick... Him and Gene Simmons for crying out loud. <laughs> you know, it's so funny that you talk about them because I was a huge Kiss fan in, in sixth, seventh, and eighth grade. And I still oh, listen sure. to them. Um, I saw a show not too long ago with this, this guy, this toy hunter in, in New Jersey who collects toys. <laughs> He's actually got some cable show. And he was recruited by Gene Simmons or commissioned by Gene Simmons to go out and find some unique KISS memorabilia. But as you know, Gene Simmons <laughs> is the largest museum of KISS memorabilia. You know, if it has KISS, Gene has it. And it was kind of strange because Gene was kind of rude to this guy. He didn't take any of the merchandise that the guy brought back. Um, sure, this guy got the publicity of going out there and you know, he had Gene Simmons. But I don't know that there's much Gene Simmons would not do to publicize or promote himself. Um, but I exactly. just found, found it strange and odd. And some of the things that I've now learned about him through his, um, I guess, television shows and stuff makes me kind of not like Kiss as much. And the same held true for Ozzy Osbourne. I was a huge Ozzy fan. And then you realize that 
you know, he's all messed up and, and Sharon is what she is. And while I still like his music, you know, it kind of gives you a different idea of who he is. It's the Wizard of Oz syndrome, Peter. It is. I like the Wizard of Oz I don't know. But we can talk about all this. This could be a great show. <laughs> I'm excited. There about you go. It. All right, Good. so we're going to we're going to get some feedback in the meantime, you and I will start the wheels turning and see if we sure. can get this in place and um, you know, see what develops. I think it's a great idea. So, we're going to wait for your comments out there. Please make sure you tweet me, post it on Facebook. You can put some comments in the YouTube live feed. Um, put it on Blog Talk Radio, however you communicate with us, email, phone calls. Just let us know what you think, because if you're interested, we're going to get it going. That's going to do it for us today, Bob. I just, again, want to thank our sponsor, Audible, and remember to get your free audio book by going to audibletrial.com forward slash UTL radio. Are we good, Bob? I think we're good. At least I can hear you. Very good. All right, so that's going to do it for today. Thanks for listening, for tuning in, downloading, and however you hear this, make sure that you comment about our new idea, which I'm super excited about, and uh, let us know what other topics you'd like us to discuss if we get that show up and running. I'm really super excited. Bob is too. So we're going to wait to hear from you guys. We'll get things rolling. I will be back later in the week with a live legal Q&A and then we're going to do our Thursday interview show. We also have Captain Lee coming back on the show for the Understanding mm. Business segment. We're going to talk to him and get through some questions that people had for him on his last uh, his last interview. So we've got a lot of good things coming up. And now with this new idea, which has super excited and energized me, um, a lot of good positive things coming down the way. So thanks for listening in. Thanks for joining. And remember that there's power in understanding the law. It's Jamie, progressive number one, number two employee. Leave a message at the... Hey, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. This is your daily pep talk. I know it's been rough going ever since people found out about your acapella group, Mad Harmony, but you will bounce back. I mean, you're the guy always helping people find coverage options with the Name Your Price tool. It should be you giving me the pep talk. Now get out there, hit that high note, and take Mad Harmony all the way to nationals this year! Sorry, this is pitchy. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.